Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Dope Black Podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome again to the Dope Black Dads podcast. I'm Marcus Ramtahal, and my guest today is Darren Sital Singh. He's the managing director of Studio Pi, an award-winning artist management agency that specializes in the promotion of underrepresented talent. Launched two years ago, Studio Pi has already worked on over 300 projects with progressive thinking brands, including Google, ITV, Channel 4, The Body Shop, Sky, The Guardian, the list goes on. Prior to that, he was the managing director of upmarket men's lifestyle media brand, The Jackal, publisher of Shortlist Magazine and advertising director of UK Esquire. And that's quite a lot. I've obviously read that off the page. Welcome, Darren. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Marcus. I'm super excited to have you. I've, I've often beginning these podcasts by saying I have the pleasure of getting all the, the creatives, uh, but super proud of this one because actually we met at uh, an event uh, for... Black History Month at News UK, didn't we? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So they are they're the parent company of Studio Pie. So I was uh, I was flattered to you know to be invited and included in that event. It was a good event. Yeah. It. Yeah. Me too. I had a great time. I think it was a bit bit too short. If anything, uh, yeah. I was knackered by the end of it. It, it like networking and meeting new people. It takes energy, doesn't it? It takes a it's a skill. It's a craft and. Uh, yeah, I know. I know how you feel like coming back from that. You meet good people. You try and you know at least meet at least three new people or something like that. But it's exhausting. You know, you got to do a lot of talking. Yeah, but it was was a great event. And there were some fantastic speakers and panelists, and, and yeah, I had absolutely mm. great time. I had the pleasure of bumping into you and learning all about uh, what you do with Studio Pi. Um, and I thought it'd be great for our listeners to hear about you know your company, your vision, what it is you're doing because it sounds absolutely amazing. Oh, thanks, thanks. Uh, you want me to talk that through now? Yeah, go ahead. Tell yeah, us. All right. uh, so we we launched a couple of years ago uh, in a pandemic. You know, in October in a pandemic. So you know, the first year was was very very difficult. But really, with the premise that uh, we recognise that there is underrepresentation within the creative sector. In fact, there was a government survey uh, that year in 2020, which identified four categories. So that's people of colour, women, those from a lower socioeconomic background and those uh, living with a disability as being overtly underrepresented across the creative sector in all aspects of creatives. Um, so the founder, 
So Tini in Baldinia, she's uh, she's not with the agency anymore, but she founded it. She's a commissioner and she was just fed up of seeing the same names, the same faces coming through to her as options for photographers, illustrators, videographers, etc. And, you know, being Sri Lankan, brown, female, entrepreneurial minded, uh, felt that she wanted to do something about it. And I think the good thing from News UK's perspective is regardless of how you view them and their brands that they have, uh, they were good enough to say, look, we've got investment fund and we believe in this project, so we'll back it. And she did that, you know, she, in her own time, put together a roster of 10 photographers and 10 illustrators. Uh, we've got eight now and 15 illustrators two years on and all of them from, you know, from those backgrounds or one or more of those backgrounds. And that's that's the mission. You know, so far, business has been good. You know, as I said, 300 plus projects with some great brands. We shot Ian Wright for a Google campaign last month. It went digital out of home across the country. So we're doing some really, really good stuff, but it's just scratching the surface you know it's there's yeah. more to be done and we we had a quite a long conversation at the event i remember talking about my experience is in front of the camera mm. uh, and i've been working um in front of the camera for 15 years now um and actually when you stop and think about it in all those years it's very very rare that you see people of color women um people with disabilities behind the camera in those mm. positions of um photographer illustrator director um even producing and it's quite something you know i remember we had this conversation as well i did a job last year end of last year where the dop was a black man and i remember coming home to my wife and saying this shouldn't be weird but the weirdest thing happened <laughs> 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 and it was great but also I was like oh hang on a minute that felt strange to me to yeah. see that um, yeah. which is why I was just so fascinated about what you guys are doing well there's, there's there's so much conversation around representation in media representation like in front of the camera you know so you can't you can't really watch evening programs on the assumption that you're watching anything live with ads now but that might have ads where there isn't a mixed race mixed gender um, a diverse casting within a lot of those ads. In fact, you know, it's it's probably harder now to find a middle class white family in any <laughs> of these in any of these pictures. Um, but like you said, behind the camera, it's probably predominantly a white male crew. Um, and so much of what we're doing is obviously drawing attention to photographers and illustrators through stills, through film directors. We want to move on to casting stylists set design but anyone who's involved in the creative process uh, or the production process of creative and, and one of the things that we do with with pie productions which we soft launched recently is to make a pledge and admittedly it's not my pledge i didn't come up with this i met a really, really inspiring photographer um from the u.s when i was doing a, a panel for black history month two years ago and he talked of a pledge called double the line and it's something that was in the States, specifically around TV production, theatre production and film production, because it's more interchangeable in terms of the crews. But that whenever they worked with someone, they wanted to work with an agency or a client to essentially double the line uh, on the crew so that someone from an underrepresented background can actually have demonstrable and lived experience on set uh, or within role. But also learning from someone who has had more experience, but they get paid for it. Because one of the wow. issues is that there's quite a blockage 
and a lack of opportunity to get experience, let alone paid experience. So if we can do something like that by working with the brands and the the agencies we work with to encourage them to just say, look, for a small extra fee, we're just talking about having one extra person and we will make sure that they're from an underrepresented background. So you still get the expertise that you want to buy into because, again, a lot of it is about fear of risk or yeah, risk, yeah. Uh, being risk averse so you still get the uh shall we say the risk security from the team that we'll put together but let's just bring in some people who might get an opportunity uh, an opportunity to experience that and actually i met um a really interesting multidisciplinary artist today and he challenged me a bit and he said look i think you're doing what i think that's great but really do you think you could go one further and say maybe it's double the project and i was like wow okay wow. okay so <laughs> Maybe if we are shooting a series of social uh, ads, social videos for uh, for a brand, maybe we just produce two more, but with a completely different team to then give that team the opportunity to actually have created something rather than maybe just have experienced what it was like seeing mm. somebody else create. And it just it literally happened today. And I was like, okay, Gosh. take that on board. I'll uh, yeah. we'll think about that. I mean, as you said, still amazing what you're doing, scratching the surface. And I think very specifically, and I've posted about this before, um, just by the nature of what I do, my children have started to be involved in photo shoots and be involved in in filming commercials or whatever it is. Mm. And the best part of that for me isn't that they're working. It's great if they choose to carry on, fantastic. but it's that they're being exposed to things that I wasn't even aware of. You mm. know, my, my eldest in particular is coming onto sets going, what's that person's job? What's that person's job? Yeah. How, why does it take this many people to make a commercial? Yeah. What what's doing? a grip? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and she's seeing things and thinking, oh, so that's a job. Okay. Mm. I never knew that. And I, I never knew that, you know, when I was growing up, even when I started as a model, it was only when I started to work, I was like, oh my word, it takes a lot of people to get this over the line. Um, and I'm wondering kind of how you see that challenge in the first place. It's one thing having an agency with all these creatives available, but do you find you're struggling to actually find people who are you know, saying, oh, that's a career option for me and being trained and coming into the industry? I think specifically from uh, certain backgrounds. So. I know we sort of touched upon this, didn't we? But like, I guess culturally for us, like my, my father came over, my dad came over from Jamaica in 56 uh, and, you know, came came with a certain work ethic and a certain belief on the industries that you should go into. You know, there should be places that, you know, where you make money, you build a foundation for yourself, a life for yourself. In his words, meet a lovely woman, have a family, buy a house, all that sort of stuff. It yeah. was, you know, it's almost preordained in his own mind of how I wanted to do it. And it was, I would say there wasn't necessarily a huge amount of pressure to go to university, but there was pressure to go to university. <laughs> and I was the first out of my cousins to go to, you know, a, a university in, in terms of like the Leeds University or something like that. So an established university. So I, I, I know what it's like to have that sort of experience. But when, I, when we're talking to artists within the creative world, so if I had told him I want to be a photographer, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, just, I don't imagine what those conversations really would have been like. I don't think it would have taken me seriously at all. <laughs> and I think when you're from probably predominantly West African backgrounds, Caribbean backgrounds, probably South Asian as well, there's an expectation that you're going into a certain vocation, if you like, mm. where it's recognized that there's a track of money and <laughs> credibility within society and reputation, etc. And I think the creative arts are looked at with suspicion. You know, it's looked at that I don't see how you could make a career 
doing that. And that's because it's just not well documented. You know, in the TV and the series uh, and children's programs we were brought up, you know, it's doctor, it's lawyer, yes. or it's policeman. And it's a very preordained and very obvious and stereotypical kind of roles. Whereas, you know, uh, you know, uh, trying to explain what a DOP is. <laughs> I mean, and admittedly, sometimes I have to remind myself what a DOP is. But, you so know, for the listeners, actually, who might not understand what you're talking about, what is a DOP? <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I'm on the spot. Uh, the D- DOP is a, technically is a director of photography and they would work with the creative director in the creations of films. So they would they would be the one who would shoot the film while you'd have a creative director uh, essentially working out angles and, and how they visually want it to look. But the, ultimately the DOP is the one who would do the shooting. Um, and again, it just, it's not it's not very well read. So again, when I think of my daughter, and I know I think yours are a little bit older than mine. My oldest is seven. Um, I don't think she's yet at the stage where she comprehends a lot of that stuff. But, mm. uh, you know, even just thinking about uh, different types of jobs that she might be exposed to still feels quite limited, even though it's in our vocabulary and it's within media a lot. She, you know, she wouldn't be able to identify many beyond that. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done at uh, outreach level within schools, which takes money, which takes effort. Yeah which states convincing, then really you've got to be able to show to them that they can make money. And I was I was talking to someone who actually spends a lot more time doing this type of outreach. And their argument is that it shouldn't be the students that you're speaking to, it should be the parents, because they have the biggest influence and it's their level oh, of acceptance yeah. and approval that the pupils or the students would need in order to get their blessing to move into their area. I mean, then you think, how do you do that? That's really interesting because I do a bit of, of outreach stuff to schools, particularly with students, particularly primary schools, because, you know, just working in kids TV, I suppose, and having primary school age kids. And I'm often kind of trying to say to them, listen, you know, I'm not famous, but this is how I make my living. This is Mm. a career. Mm. Um, You may not have heard that before, but actually there's lots of us out there and you've got this option available to you as well. Um, And it takes me back uh, pre-pandemic again, a shoot I did in Bristol where the majority of this cast, just because of how they were casting it, was East Asian. Um, so Chinese, Japanese, uh, Korean, etc. And uh, they were a bit older than me and they were talking about their children taking their A-levels and choosing what university degrees to go to. And it was really interesting because we had this assumption that it was going to be like kind of the typical South Asian and African thing of like, okay, well, you know, you're going to study accountancy or law or medicine and go into these professions Mm, mm. and these guys you know very um well to do very educated like no i'm telling my kids you need to go into the arts because the world is changing and you want to be at the the front of that and there's according to, to them this huge rush within the community now to say hey you know we need to start our kids playing instruments we need to show our kids how to do videography we need to tell them that getting an MA is a good idea. Um, yes, that was really interesting seeing that kind Refreshing. of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also it was very... The way they described it to me was, this is a very calculated decision. <laughs> 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 it's like, this is what makes money now. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but that was, I mean, that was really interesting to see because you've just made a really important point there um, about kind of convincing the parents and actually... And my very first Dope Black Dads podcasts with it was with um, David George. He's the head of influencer marketing at Mattel, and he's written a book called Black Boy Create. And 
it takes you through, it's aimed at kind of teenage boys who are thinking about joining the creative industry mm. from both sides of the camera. But he uh-huh. also introduces the book saying, it's not just for you, but it's for your parents as well. I want them to see the figures of how much money there is mm-hmm. in in this industry, that it's not a waste of your time, that if you've got a talent in this, you can make a good living in this. And it's absolutely fascinating. Um, but I think the challenge, as you rightly put, is uh, maybe reaching out to, to parents. And obviously parents are going to be listening to this and probably thinking, well, you know, that's all well and good, but, but how, how do I get my child yeah. into that? Uh, how, how into the creative industry? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know what? I reckon it's probably easier than it's ever been before, just simply because the amount of scholarships and programs, accelerated programs or internships that are specifically aimed now for underrepresented talent. You know, there's, mm. you've got the School of Communication of Arts, who when I last spoke to them, I don't know if they want me saying this out loud or not, but yeah, had struggled to fill the quota of scholarships that were deliberately aimed and positioned at underrepresented wow. talent, specifically within Lambeth. And you sort of think, how? Wow. How, 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 is, how, is, how has that happened? Because they are a highly reputable um, school, if you mm. like, uh, within the creative industry. And the contacts that they have and the pathways into ad agencies and the creative world from that point uh, are exceptional. And then you have like Brixton Finishing School, what Ali Owen's doing there. They seem to be oversubscribed. They're doing phenomenal work. So there do seem to be a lot of opportunities, but outside of the mainstream education setup. Because I think once you're in the mainstream education, so it's like, mm. there's a different agenda, you know, yeah. and it's whatever they feel they need to push. And, you know, it's already an issue in terms of how much, I guess, of black content and black history is pushed within the curriculum, let alone talking about art. So it's interesting that the parents would be the ones that do it. And I'd, I'd, be, I'd be keen to know whether they themselves are in the creative industry and then therefore they can see it. And then it becomes mm. a generational thing. Yes. You know, my, my, dad, my dad was a teacher and a lecturer, my mum didn't go to uh, university, but ended up sort of working, um, working life and then managed to sort of build her own business and sell her own business. So there's, there's entrepreneurial flair within that and an education. So it feels both traditional and quite new. Yeah. And she's been very supportive of a lot of the uh, entrepreneurial sort of options and, and uh, opportunities that, that have come to me. But I, you know, I wasn't aware of a lot of that creative industry in the school that I went to it was all about law and whether you were moving up into Cambridge. And so I think it's just a mm. bit about propaganda and representation. So the more we see about it, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was used to see, you know, the, the failed boyfriend in any sort of movie I was watching was probably <laughs> in the creative industry or, or worse, a photographer, right? And it would just yeah. be a rolling of the eyes of the dad. And why are you going out with him? There's this guy who's got this yeah. solid job and he works in accountancy or something <laughs> like that. You know? Well, there was that classic joke, wasn't there? What do you call a guitarist without a girlfriend? Homeless. <laughs> that's what I mean. So you saw it. That's, that's what we were conditioned to, right? Yeah. You know, whereas, whereas now, uh, you know, there are some photographers who are, well, they're doing very, very well. And actually, you know what? I bet there are many mid-level photographers who are also doing well. And I think yeah. the rise of influencers is another example of how you can make money. Admittedly, that is a very dark and dangerous and <laughs> wild west situation because it highlights that people go, well, okay, Molly May, I can make loads of money. But the reality is for every Molly May, there's a million who are nowhere close to doing yeah, it. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think good- who, Steph Smith spoke about that recently on, okay. um, on one of her podcasts, actually. Um, they, they really delved into the creator economy and where the money is in that economy. Right. Yeah. Um, 
so that's definitely worth worth checking out if you oh, do that. I'll do that. But but at the top level, the exposure and the raising of awareness of content creators and another aspect of creativity yeah. is 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 a positive marketing aspect for the creative industry. So I just think, you know, the legal industry, the accountancy industry, the management consultants, they've been doing this for years. They're institutions mm. that know how to market themselves and know how to go after the cream of educational talent. Whereas when you look at the creative industry, there are many situations and many areas where they, they haven't really got their own act together and haven't unified and come together with which to then have their own little propaganda and their own little sort of media yeah. and outreach that, that convinces people to come in. Actually, thinking about that, I, I was speaking to, um, he is a musician, but his, his day job is is in a very important financial role, fantastic guitarist. And he was saying to me, as he's moving up the corporate ladder in this really um, swanky kind of um, IT-based finance role, he's struggling because the role there has evolved to, well, now you need to present to camera. Now you need to be able to put your ideas across in this medium and edit and do all this kind of stuff. And he's like... Mm-hmm. The people that are learning this at school now, whatever they go into, like this is important. You need to be able to even like I started out as a model and I remember being if I was ever asked to tape something, just sending files to my agent being like, there you go. And they would use their software and stitch it together and send it off for you these days. You've got to know how to shoot that yourself, edit that yeah. yourself, yeah. send it off, um, all <clears throat> that kind of stuff. Um, and I just had to learn that on the fly. I mean, hopefully they're teaching at school um but that's interesting that that industry is already saying hey we need to balance out um that kind of thinking with some more creative stuff um and the other thing that occurred to me as well whilst you were speaking is i remember specifically i, I was educated in a state school in east london and my experience of of, of being there and my, my colleagues there was yeah, you got to do a bit of art, a bit of music, a bit of drama, but the bare minimum, because mm. in order to be seen as a successful school, we need you guys to be passing maths, English and science. And no matter how bad you are at that, we're going to make sure you pass. And very early on in my life, I worked, uh, volunteered abroad uh, with a charity called Rally International. I was in Malaysia for three months in Southeast Asia for six months. The majority of the friends I had on Rally were from public schools are privately educated and when they talked to me about their education it was a different different story it was well they just found what I was good at and they doubled down on it so I met musicians who were like do you know what you're probably not going to pass science but if you're good at piano we can take you all over the world with choir tours and all that kind of stuff are you good at sport are you well you know what we've got cracking rugby facilities here don't worry about trying to pass maths you know you won't need it uh, not in that sort of kind of vein, but <laughs> they seem to be able to get away with, you know what, if that kid doesn't pass his, his GCSE maths, it's not the end of the world. Whereas I felt like for me and, and my my peers in my school, it was very much like, if you don't pass English maths and science, you will fail at life. Um, and that was, it wasn't daunting for me because I, um, I was good at those things. Mm. But at the same time, as I got out into the real world, I was like... This hasn't particularly helped me. I've got great grades in it, but <laughs> you know, I don't yeah. really. I don't think I've used it in in my uh, in my work since. Maybe English, of course. Well, yeah, okay. So I, I know I know what you mean. That there was, and I had a sort of similar experience at school. I was very lucky. I went I went I went to a I went to a comp, but it was a well funded one. It was actually privately funded by a brewery until they realised that that was inappropriate, and then they had to sort of. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, in our, so in our first year, you would when you're there, it's, it's a very sort of strange Hogwarts almost ceremony where at the end of the first year, you would go to the brewery and you receive this commemorative coin for wow. having completed your first year. And the, you're like, wow, what is this place? And they had a state-of-the-art, you know, all-weather pitch and they had a cricket pitch and a rugby pitch, like massive grounds without ever being private school. But at the same time, there was still a pressure to do to deliver on the core subject but you could tell that those who excelled in sport and those who excelled in music in particular they were invited into other little areas in which they could excel uh, and that's an acceleration and i don't know i've got a friend of mine who works in education and every now and then he tells me about sort of the pressures to deliver from mm. a funding perspective on the core areas where you do in, in order to receive your funding and you start to think well that's a bit of a topsy-turvy setup then isn't it where the funding is dictating where you need to excel and then deciding which of your pupils can <laughs> excel in that area. So yeah. I, I, lo- I love the idea of, of, of just identifying however loose a thread, a passion for something, mm. and then allowing them the freedom to run with that. Because uh, I, you know, I did maths, physics and history at A-level, and I, you know, I struggled really to kind of get through those. I then went and did civil engineering and architecture at Leeds Uni, and <laughs> I, nearly, like, I nearly busted out first year. I had seven resits uh, in my first year. My dad lost, I mean, I lost his mind. Uh, and but you know for him i finished it you know and i got out and i finished and i finished my degree but do i look do i think now that i look at using double integration mathematics and anything that i'm doing right now uh, you know i'm solid at maths and i can i can do my forecast my business but you start to think about real use things and my and my daughter this just when i was explaining about the podcast and why i'd be on it etc we got talking about university and so oh do i have to go to university (laughs) It's entirely up to you. It's entirely up to you decide what you want to do. I'm not going to push you into it. And I felt it felt like the right thing to say. It yeah. might feel different in 10 years at that point. And she was like, I don't think I'll go. Oh, we'll see how we go there. Oh, you got you got 10 years. It's all right. You don't have to worry too that's, much. You, that's you really relax. interesting. I, my, my oldest is 10 now, so the clock is ticking. And she often asks me, do I have to go? And I often say, you don't have to. But at the same time, she um, she's got a few different aspirations. One that's been with her for a long time and stuck for a while is she wants to be a Lego engineer. You know, oh, the nice. guys that design and build Lego, nice. which I had to start looking at it. You need an architecture degree How did she know about for. that? How did she know about that? She was just, she just came in one day and was like, so who builds this? How do they build this? How do I get, how do I do that job? So I had to look it up and I was like, you need a degree in architecture or computer-aided design. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Oh my word. So um, if she goes down that path, it's gonna cost me a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> At the same time, you know, she's got lots of other things she's interested in. And it's interesting, I think we're at this weird crossroads. And I don't know if it's the times we're living in or the jobs that you and I do, but both of my children, seven and 10, are having conversations with their friends about, you know, what do you want to be, what do you want to do? Which, to be honest, my wife and I don't tend to entertain because we're like, well, you know what? I'm 37. I still don't know what I want to do. <laughs> I just kind of... You're young, I, Marcus. You're young. Yeah, I see, just fall into kind of different jobs that I've enjoyed and I, I have lots of different roles that I do now. And they're saying, they're going to school and their friends are saying, what do you want to do? And they start reeling off, you know, Lego, engineer, model, theatre, whatever it is they're into, nail technician. And their friends are saying to them, oh, well, you can't do all those things. You have to pick one. And then they're saying, but my dad... <laughs> does about five different things so hopefully you know it's a good thing that i'm showing them there's lots of opportunities and paths you can do simultaneously 
But it's interesting that they're getting pushback already from their peers at school. Actually, no, it's not an option for you. What? Why are you dreaming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the conditioning is already there. That it's yeah. sort of one job, one life. That's the that's the track that yeah. you're going to have. Which which makes me feel a little bit sad for their parents if that's how they feel that their <laughs> things are going. I mean, I don't know them, but you know, I, I hope that's not the case. But I, I, but I love that that they could start to get a sense of options. Mm. multi-discipline you know and again it's interesting when you sort of I guess slightly bring it back to some of the artists that we talked to some of them don't really like being labelled as a photographer you know as well I, I do photography but I shoot film you know and I actually do some Web3 stuff and I've done some NFTs and you're like okay okay and so this term sort of multidisciplinary, I think was for a quite a while quite a wanky term you know yeah. it's quite a oh yeah okay right yeah sure multidisciplinary, whatever you want to call yourself but actually the reality is they're just multi-skilled and yeah. they're just passionate about many, many forms of art. And I think if that can start to be bedded in with our children a lot earlier and the idea that you can try something, do it for a couple of years yeah, or, or less, doesn't matter. You know, we, it's this entrepreneurial world now where I feel thankful to be, uh, to be part of where the idea of failing, I remember when I had my first business, the, the, the Jackal with a, with a couple of guys, um, and I left shortlist and one of the senior people, uh, one of the, one of the execs, said to me, oh, look, let's, "Let's have a chat." But you know, I said, "Oh yeah, you know, he goes, well, you, you know, you, you do realise that you know, if you go on and do your own thing, um, and if you fail, you know, people always remember that you failed." No, I was like, "What? What?" Wow. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to swear because that's how I felt. I felt like swearing, uh, but it stuck with me all the way through. And I did fail, but I made sure I read enough books and I spoke to enough other entrepreneurs who had failed, and understanding at how failing is a good thing. And actually, as long as you learn from that, and it's not like a big fail with a big fat F and it's marked mm. on my head forever. You know, I learned a lot from that experience. I sort of two and a half, three years. But what I learned is that actually, it isn't necessarily that the idea might have failed, but I've learned from that and I can take something on. And here I am now in another sort of entrepreneurial sort of mindset, fledgling business, taking everything that I learned then and pouring it into this. So you don't necessarily fail. You just, that doesn't work out and you take that with you into mm. the next thing that you do and I really want to try and instill that sort of philosophy and understanding in my daughters that it's okay to have tried this but you've yeah. learned from that and you can move on to this and education might not necessarily be the thing that allows that fluidity to move around and experience lots of things I'd love to think that it might be for them but from what I'm seeing at the moment still feels like you know, you have your choices and you'll pick your course and you'll do this and yeah. that'll be the three years but beyond that there's the whole world is is open yeah, and it's interesting, you know, there's a real path of growth when you when you do put yourself out there and, and we are starting to hear more, we're, we're articulating it as failure in a good way. So I, I have very similar experiences. In fact, I did a talk for Black History Month last, week, last month and um, I thought they were, it was just like a Q&A panel thing and they're like, no, you're going to speak for 15 minutes as, as I got onto the call. Long time. So I said, like, okay, fine. And very heartfelt, very off the cuff. I said, you know, I used to describe my life as a series of happy accidents. Reflecting on it now, my life is a series of failures. And I, I took from the age of 17 right the way up to now, everything that I failed at. But the, the flip side of that was everything that I learned, all the perseverance, all the times that people were like, really? professional musician 
self-taught. Oh, oh, how, how's the band going? Oh, okay. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. oh you're acting now. Oh, it's lovely. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and also, uh, you know, lucky enough to have achieved some great stuff in those fields now. But still, having achieved all those things, still having conversations with, are you getting enough enough acting? Are you oh okay? You got enough work going on, and yeah. realizing that's going to be people's mindset for a very, very but, long time. But are you enjoy, are you enjoying yourself? Are you enjoying the experience of all Do of you those? Know what? I'm absolutely loving it, and, well, and I think as well, I've I've been working doing a lot. Yeah, so outside of all of that, do a lot of coaching and mentoring, which I love as well. And I'm speaking to a lot of young people who are like, I don't understand how you are you know, kind of wacky children's TV person one day and then very serious leader, coach, personal development person this day and Mm. you're just able to do it. I'm like, I just love those things. I have no shame in in liking what I like and indulging in those things Mm. and feeling that I'm actually pretty good at them because I'm obviously, you know, making a living from it until someone finds me out. (laughs) 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 Um, But also, I suppose the key part of that, it's a really interesting question is... um, I feel like those young people who I'm working with are inspired to go, hey, I can be whatever I want to be at the same time. I can be an entrepreneur, but also a creative, but also this, but also work in, say, local government. I've done a lot of work in local government over the last two decades. Um, And that's okay. And that's completely possible. Um, But I realise it comes with a lot of challenges, which is why it was so interesting hearing what, what kind of, work you're doing thinking about the challenges you must be facing as well uh, and coming back to that idea of well are we getting enough people from those underrepresented backgrounds going oh that's a job for me i could do that mm-hmm. mm. i think it's and also it's just breaking the idea of what's what's normal you know there's mm. you know the idea you know, the working week the working hours the the one job career and things like that, you know. I've always, I've always looked. You know, the longest I, I stayed in post uh, or stayed at a company was eight years with a squire, and basically, I, I had a blast. You know, I was twenty-four. I had a tight, I had a business card that said fashion uh, manager of a squire. I literally abused my situation, swanning around town, behaving like <laughs> if I was my kid now, I'd be clipping him around the ears, saying, "Come on, sort <laughs> yourself out." <laughs> but, I, but I enjoyed it, and I, you know, I had eight years, and it was, it was a wonderful time, but. But now I look at anyone who's been at a place or stayed at a place for, for a long period of time, and I respect that that's what works for them, but it just doesn't work for me. I wouldn't have learned what I learned at Shortlist or The Jackal or mm. the year I did consultancy or being part of Studio Pie. I just feel I'm so much more rounded uh, and more broadly educated from a work perspective that I don't think I could ever have been if I'd have stayed up. Now, there are moments, obviously, you know, when you look at your bank balance at the end of the month and go, Wow, if I'd have stayed somewhere, I'd be on this salary, would I? But, but it's all ifs and buts and wouldas and couldas yeah. and hoops that might be made redundant and then not got back into somewhere. So I think I think being able to sort of dabble and experience many things has been my preference now. And I hope that obviously with Studio Pie we can we can build this up. But it's the it's the variety of work within that. And also the conversation, you know, having a mission. In fact, I'm doing it's interesting you say coaching actually, because I'm doing some professional coaching and he was introducing me to sort of this pyramid, this NLP uh, pyramid, which talked to, I think, at the bottom, I think something like um, environment, behavior, skills or something like that, and moving through into sort of identity, beliefs and mission. And so the majority of people would have synergy with the bottom three in terms of they like what they do, who they work with, 
the place that they work, the things that they do day to day. That's probably most people's acceptance of what I want from my role. But you start to then question or start to doubt whether it's the right type of thing is, does this role speak to me as who I am as a person? Does the mission of this business and the role that I do match my own beliefs and values? And then you probably start to think, no, it doesn't. You know, I'm in a corporate place and it doesn't really suit me. For the first time ever, I've had it flipped. You know, the mission of the agency, I'm absolutely on board with. It's about promoting underrepresented talent, fighting for them and getting those equal opportunities. You know, the beliefs uh, speak to me, the identity, who I am as a son of an immigrant in terms of the experience within this country, albeit what feels like a privileged one that I've had, but I understand the differences. But it's not a fully firing agency yet. It's not as big and as large as I want it to be. We've got visions of, you know, New York and in Paris, things like that. So there's a lot of work to be done that makes it at the bottom part really unstable. So it's <laughs> it's interesting sort of as you go through your career, the different things that come to you. But I think I must be very and I should be very thankful for having beliefs and missions and identity because finding that feels at times holy grail stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it really resonates again, going back to you know, I talk a lot on here about my work in the creative industry. I don't talk a lot about the kind of corporate work that I do, not because I don't love it, just because it, it hardly ever comes up. Um, and doing a lot of work in local government still, people are like, oh, you must do that because you need to do it. Like That must be your day job to pay the bills. And um, actually, there's there's a real passion for what we're trying to achieve there. Um, I, and I've been in it since I was 17 years old. I've seen real positive change and I want to be a part of that change as well. Uh, and, and Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Kind of, I feel I've got a lot to offer from a very different perspective to the, the general corporate world mm. as well. Yeah, I'm no just doubt. thinking, as you're talking about, um, you know, the day-to-day of being creative, potentially a lot of our listeners might not be aware of, you know, if you're not doing like a nine-to-five office job, or a job that, as you you spoke about before, you know you see on the telly um, quite regularly. So, what's a typical day or week look like for you in your industry? 
Um, well, so I think for us, it's probably a little bit more atypical than, say, true creators because we are management of talent. So, again, for those, I mean, and let's face it, I, I didn't know much about managing talent until I came into managing. You'll probably know more than me. Uh, <laughs> being, being, being talent, you've probably got a specific <laughs> view about agents. You're not going to air on this podcast with me. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's it's... It's essentially a service industry, and I, I can't I can't liken it to anything else other than recruitment and estate agents, right? So we, as a business, a studio pie, don't actually create anything ourselves, which is very alien to me. You know, I've had 20 years within media and publishing where I've always been part or connected to creators and maybe monetized their unbelievably talented creative skills. Uh, so here, you know, we are agents. We take a percentage of the jobs that we bring for our talent. So it's them really. So our day-to-day isn't too far off what you would expect a typical sort of sales team wrong. You know, it's still Monday to Friday. I do a four-day week, which still raises eyebrows for many people. <laughs> but it's important to me that I have that balance um, of, a, of a 4-3 split and I get the work done. That's ultimately what, what needs to be happening. But, but primarily our objective is about uh, networking, engaging with clients, with agencies, so that our age, our artists are as visible as possible with their new work um, and that they're in a position to be thought of. And there's no, the trickiest part is that art is so subjective <laughs> that there is no yes or no. You know, it's, do you like this? Oh, no, you don't. Oh, okay. So I guess we won't be working with you. So we'll now <laughs> go have to find someone else. And you can't really argue with that. You can't really say, well, why don't you like it? I like it. It's, well, because I don't. It's my it's my perception of that image. It's how I take from that image, from my lived experience, whatever uh, prejudices or preconceptions or bias I might have. And you can't sell against that. And again, that's quite an alien, for me, an alien sort of proposition because normally it would be a media plan or an audience. You'd be like, well, it's clearly this or it's clearly that and this is better than that. This is better than that. You can construct an argument. So uh, I'd say it's day to day. For the artist though, it's very, it's very, very split. A lot of time is spent on thinking about uh, their own personal work because you need to have a certain level of uh, personal work happening to stay fresh as an artist, to feel like you're active. Then obviously you want to be making sure that commercial work is coming through uh, and that's obviously our role to do that. But on top of that, they still have to make their own relationships. So many of our artists have relationships with brands already. One, Madeline Penfold, has a very strong relationship with New Balance. And outside of our relationship with New Balance, She's commissioned directly to shoot Sadia Mane or Coco Gauff, etc. So uh, depending on how busy they are, there's a lot of that work. But I I think one of the the things I underestimated is how much you really have to support the artists really through their day-to-day because they're not working. They're very rarely working as much as they would like to work. And again, that's that's quite alien to me because in a you know you get paid right, you have a nine to five job, you work, and you, you know you come home. Whereas for them, if they're not putting in the energies, they're worried about whether that's come through. And it's a much about man management and per- sorry, not personal management and emotional management and emotional support. And then their confidence might drop, and you feel like you know you've got to build them up. And again, I'm sure that Mark, because you've had, or maybe you haven't had, you know, you know, low no, no, abs- where you've not been commissioned, right? You've not been selected, <laughs> yes, and you start to yeah. question. Am I relevant? Was it this? Was it that shot? Do I need some new headshots? You know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, all of that yeah, goes to the mind. You just need a strong, you need a strong agent to be standing by you to be able to say, oh, "Listen, this is this is quality work. It will come. It will come." So it's it's a completely different change to what I'm used to, and far more emotional. So when you win projects for your artists, you feel like you win with them, and you win more. Yeah. But when you don't win them, 
oh, it's just personally devastating at times because you don't want to deliver that news and you knew they wanted it and we put so much work mm-hmm. into it and it's whereas before it was a corporate quite a black and white well we didn't win that project we'll move on to the next one now it's like I feel like I've got to do something for that person specifically see I, I think over the years now I've become more black and white about kind of oh, I didn't get that job I'll move on to the next one there are a handful that I can still think oh man I really wanted that one one of them Andy and the Odd Socks, Andy in the band was one first time in a long time. That was five years ago. I walked into audition room and I was like, I really want this job. There was a lot of people there, over a hundred different people auditioning. And I was like, I, I really want, and I was like up against some incredible musicians and actors. Um, and who knows how I got here today. I'm grateful that I did. Um, but that was the first time in a long time where I felt that, oh gosh, I really want this job. Um, not that I didn't enjoy my work, not that I didn't want to win contracts and, and shoot shoot jobs. Um, it was just I'd kind of got used to that. That's how the industry works. You don't get this one, you, you'll get the next one. Or, you know, there's there's always going to be another commercial. There's always going to be another photo shoot. That, that kind of abundance mindset, I suppose. Um, but it's interesting because today I had to do a self-tape for a job and that one came through. And it wasn't necessarily, the job was great. Um, really funny script you know when you read a script and you're laughing out loud right. it's like that's fantastic brilliant and then I'm oh I'm invested now I really want this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's shooting abroad as well and one of the reasons I work in this industry is I love to travel I've been really fortunate to play music on three continents and you know travel away for shoots and things like that and have some very unique travel experiences as well I think that's the really important part like you could you know, work a nine to five and, and take three weeks holiday and go to Spain or Greece or wherever and just sit on a beach in a hotel. But I've seen the world in a very specific way that a lot of yeah, people yeah. won't have seen it. Yeah. So this job shooting abroad as well. I'm like, oh man, I've fallen into this trap now. I really, really want this. And you know, you get the message from your agent and you kind of, there's like an endorphin rush. <laughs> Got a message from my agent. What is it? <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> um, and then... Yeah, I had another message about another job saying I was penciled for it. And I was like, oh, penciled? Maybe I'm going to get it. <laughs> Did you get it? Uh, I still I only got the pencil today. So, um, Oh, this is live. Oh, this is something that's going on now. Today, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. well, oh, I, wish you, I, wish you all the, I wish your agent all the luck. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but that's interesting as well because... Um, you're coming at it from a point of view where you're absolutely right. If you speak to a lot of people in the creative industry, wherever, I'm thinking about models, actors, presenters, you know, always there's always something about an agency or an agent and people being annoyed. And, and, and maybe it's because I've been in it so long or perhaps just got really good agents. Um, I feel a lot of empathy for the role that you guys have and um, what you've got to do and what you've got to put up with. And also that thing about managing people and managing their expectations and and maybe some people needing a bit more attention than others and um i'm always mindful of just being timely with my replies making sure i submit things on time Mm. trying to make that that relationship as smooth as as possible um but it's quite it's quite a task isn't it it's interesting you're talking about it's like sales but it's also creative is that do you find that side of it quite fulfilling that you've got that mixture of things and you're able to really get involved with people or is it more of a challenge? No, no, it's, it's absolutely uh, the best balance. You know, so look, the days where you know that you've got to do the outreach and send out 
200 emails and personalize them and tweet them and make sure that yours is something that sits out or stands out versus, you know, all the others that are coming in where you've got to, you know, you've got to curate the imagery for a deck and things like that. They can, they can be the tougher days. And I can see that in my agents that, um, you know, it's, it's when they're quiet or the headphones are on and you realize, mm-hmm. okay, they're, they're just in the zone. They need to get through this period. But when a brief comes in, it's when the agency comes alive. And that's even before maybe we've spoken to an artist because we're already starting to formulate ideas. We're already starting to think about how we might be able to help guide the artist. And then when we bring them in, it just takes it up another level because then they bring their enthusiasm and their uh, energy to it. So that's what I mean when the, the lows are the lows because it feels like you collectively we've lost this, even though in mm-hmm. fairness the artist might feel that they had. Like, it feels like collectively we lose that. But um, I think the balance without that, without that element of creativity, I don't think anyone would want to be an agent if, if I'm honest you know and, mm. and again that's no disrespect to recruitment or, or, <laughs> or estate agents but I think you you need to be involved with that so you know again when that Google brief came in it was just exciting to be part of that and to be in a chemistry meeting and be in a pre-production meeting and I think my fear was that when I first got invited to have a conversation about this role and I didn't really know much about agenting that it was purely sales but actually the involvement in creativity and actually the expertise and sort of authority that you can have even before your artists have met with said commissioner is powerful. So I've got nothing but respect for all the other agents out there because they, they know their stuff. Like they, yeah. they really know the stuff. And actually, they probably do photography or illustration or shoot videos and have just decided this is a nice way to probably get a more regular income while maybe doing some extra stuff on the side. So, um, you know, I don't necessarily have that creative uh, part of my brain firing like some of my agents do or some of the team do. I have the business side of things. <clears throat> but I think without that balance, yeah, I, I, I go mad pretty quickly. <laughs> I think I'm the same. I quite like the variety and, and not being kind of pinned down to one thing. And I love that collaborative work, you know, every day that I am on set. And it's interesting, you know, some people think, oh, because you're uh, a professional in this industry you must be on set every single day and mm. it's not where I spend the majority of my time it's where I earn the majority of my money but my time is spent filming self-tapes managing the emails doing the, the kind of day-to-day grind of being a model and actor in the olden days running to four castings a day and running yeah. around London with your portfolio in your hand and all that yeah. kind of stuff but I always remember and still you know 15 years in Every day I step on set with a brand new team of people who just want to create something amazing, I finish and I'm like, oh, I wish I could do that every day. Because <laughs> such a buzz. Um, do, do you ever get do you ever get imposter syndrome? Do you do you ever do you ever turn up? Because you don't sound like you do, but I mean, for for me, there are plenty of occasions where maybe less so with this because you've made me feel very very comfortable. But you know, doing panels and things like that, I'm always in the, the thirty minutes in the run up to it. It's like. <laughs> Do I know anything? Does anyone want to hear from me? Like, and then I have to almost like reread my CV and go, no, I, I do know a lot of stuff. I think I think I'm all right. Do you know but what I can't I can't get overcome that initial sort of say 20 minutes of uh, am I gonna be good enough at this? I um if you asked me when I was 25, I was so cocksure and arrogant, I'd be like, nope. No, yeah. I know I'm the best. Yeah. Uh with age, probably I suppose, or ex- and experience comes a bit of it. What I'm I'm very confident as a presenter uh, and as a model because um, presenting is the only thing I've actually trained in uh, and I train people to be presenters. So I'm very confident in that. Okay, yeah, yeah. Modeling is the thing I've done the longest, 15 years. Um, 
and I learned my my trade on the job. And it's one of those things when you try and explain what it takes to be a professional model, it's really difficult to explain to people and they don't really understand how many times I try and explain my job, what it is, how it works, how you get into it. There's no school for it. No one tells you how to behave at an audition. No one tells you what a head sheet is and how to fill it out. You just turn up and hope someone's going to show you and, and you, you learn your, your craft along the way. Don't you just um, watch Zoolander? I, I just assume, I've I never just seen that it. with it, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I've, I've never seen it, so I, I can't oh. say. <laughs> I did, though, and I talk about this a lot when people do ask me about that part of the industry. Uh, I used to watch America's Next Top Model and it used to really baffle me how um, they'd get to episode 10 before they started to go to castings. And I was like, this is the job. This is what I do most of the time is attend auditions. So why are they only doing it now? Um, But I remember I did a job, um, gosh, I must have been five years into modelling. Shot it up in Oxfordshire. It was for um, a magazine. So I was booked for the whole day. Turned up in the studio and the client's shooting for about an hour. Then they disappear and they're having a few whispers of each other. And I'm like, oh God, like, are they not happy? What's going on? And I, they come back. So Marcus, we've had a discussion. Thing is, we've booked you all day, but we've got it. We've, we've got it already because you're so good. So um, we're going to have to pay you for the whole day, but you can go home. Winner. And I was like, that's great. Yeah. You know, thanks very much. That makes me feel great. You know, sorry, you got to pay me for the whole day. But they were very open and they said to me, thing is, we shot this already with a friend's nephew who's also a young black man with an afro and we shot it all day and the client was like this is rubbish so then we were like we need to go to a professional agency get a professional model so we've already hired a studio twice we've brought you in it's taken you an hour and now we're kicking ourselves and that was a real wake-up call to me that actually there's a reason you're a professional yeah um so i I, that i took that into everything i did modeling going forward being like, do you know what? You're really good at this. You might not be the right person for every job, but there's always going to be another job and you deserve to be paid what you get paid. Imposter syndrome though, still when it comes to acting and music, because I'm not a classically trained professional actor. I didn't go to drama school. I work with some incredible performers. Um, they know their craft inside out. They absolutely adore theatre. They love watching film and, and TV. Um, and it's a pleasure to work with them. It's a great way for me to learn. I love learning on the job. I love learning from people who are better than me. Mm. They're also fantastic musicians, all of them. just Not just fantastic musicians on their instruments, but on other instruments. And I remember winning through that audition process and being like, wow, that was lucky. I need to go home and practice, which is a great motivator. But certainly in those situations, still feel it. Uh, I'll take the positives from it because it inspires you to kind of work harder and, and get inspiration from other people. Mm. Um, yeah, if it ever goes away, I don't know. Um, but I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. I think it's a bit of a driver. Um, perhaps my views on kind of where I've got to with presenting and modelling are probably going to pull me down because I'm far too arrogant about what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose you, you know, you've got that you've got that extroverted energy that, that, that can pull you through, right? Whereas I think probably for some... And for many artists, especially if in illustration, where you don't need to really engage with anybody, you know, mm. like a photographer, especially if you're doing, if you're shooting talent, um, you know, you need to engage, right? You need to develop a relationship. So either you have it already because you're innately 
personable or you recognize in order to be better, you are going to have to work at that. Yeah. And you're driven to be able to do that. Whereas again, for a lot of illustrators, you're, you're at home, you're either working on a screen or you're using paper or, you know, you're doing drawings and paintings, uh, but you're doing your craft more often than not in isolation. Mm. Uh, and then when it comes to sort of meeting with a client and things like that, you haven't had that experience of being able to do that. And yeah. I think, it, well, you know, when you asked about the question about sort of breaking into the industry, one of, one of the things is just about confidence, you know, in being able to be personable and understand the right, and ask the right questions. So the role of the agent is making sure that they feel that they are well equipped, but also backed up and well covered, that if they were to make any, you know, small mistakes or drop the ball and things like that, you know, that there's someone there. But um yeah, it's it, it's interesting to sort of see how creatives. There's there's an assumption out there that creatives can be outgoing and full of energy, mm-hmm. yeah. but it, it takes all sorts to deliver all types of creativity. So um, it's managing that. Do you find uh, that anybody who is more of an introverted energy, who's regardless talented and creative, is at a bit of a you know a bit of a loss when it comes to selling their work compared to maybe the extroverts? I think it's more, I think it's less about sort of introvert and extrovert because I, I did, um, again, I, in my career, I've done some sort of training and coaching specifically on um, Myers-Briggs. And so and so one of the key learnings for me was that anyone can be an introvert or an extrovert. It just takes more energy to be either or, depending on which side of the scale that you are. So, I'd, you know, I've been, I'd felt like I was maybe introverted because I can do this. But as I said before, when we were talking about that networking and thing, you know, I'll mm. come home and I'm a, I feel exhausted. Like I, I'm capable of doing it, but it, it drains me because I get a sense that it might be the opposite for you. And actually, it gives you energy. And yeah, it, yeah. Uh, and you buzz off of that, and you could go on and do that more. And so I think it's less about introvert extra and more about a, a confidence in your work. And once a lack of confidence starts to come through, then. You can see it in the questions, you can see it in the body language, you can see it in the demeanour. And I think that's probably the hardest thing. And sometimes that lack of confidence comes through when maybe there hasn't been a job or as many jobs as you would have liked, because then you start mm. to think, well, maybe people don't like my work. And because it's so personal, yeah, your work, you're being judged for you. Probably like being a model, right? Or being a, or <laughs> being a musician. It's, there is nowhere to hide. It's, it's you, your face, your physique, your body shape, your skill, your craft is what's being judged. Whereas obviously in sales, it's really your gift of being able to sell something else. And so you're never really attached to that thing. So I can understand how it is for them. Um, but I, don't, I, I think it's more about confidence than it is necessarily about that introvert and extrovert. I've seen, I've seen some introverted people really gear themselves up and be unbelievably on point in chemistry meetings. Yeah, it must be really cool to see your, your kind of... What would you call them? Your artists, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, they're artists. Your, your artists kind of killing it and, and winning contracts and, and doing stuff uh, that, that fulfills them and pays the bills. Yeah. Do you find either personally or with your artists, there's ever a moment in those kinds of meetings where there's they like what the artist has done, but they want to change it for whatever reason or move it in another direction? And how how do you resolve that? Yeah, that that is that requires some uh, some diplomacy. I think <laughs> is the way to describe it because you reckon, and I think actually having having you know twenty plus years of sort of sales. I mean, I hate the word sales, but I have to call it you know sales experience, right? Um, 
has, has allowed me to be able to manage that. But you, you recognize that the client will always believe that they're right. They're paying the bill. So you can't really push it. But then ultimately, they've commissioned someone for a reason. You know, mm. and there's a, there's a truth to the way that they apply their craft. You know, there's a process. And you, know, you will get, you get separate emails where the feedback's come through and the client's there. And we're a bit frustrated that, you know, some of our feedback's not really been taken on board. And you've got client, uh, you've got an artist that'll be going, why did they commission me and ask me to do this? They can see that my work is like this particular way. Why did, you know, and almost you want they, they, you can sense that they want to say, why don't they just do this themselves? And it's like, oh, okay. And so you are, you're mediating sort of between the two. And I, I think a confident agent, and I've only really learned this in, the, in sort of the last six, seven months, but I think a confident agent will back the artist because ultimately they're yours, right? It's you live and die by uh, your artist as, as an artist management agency. And I think ultimately, if you can wrap that confidence in a way that a client is going to accept that feedback, then I think they respect that more. Now, there's always the odd thing where they go, listen, I understand that. That's great, Darren. Yes, we respect that. That's what we want. Mm. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> so we've hit a hard line and we're going to have to deliver ultimately what you what you want. But I think the pushing back on the creator, and that's where the subjectivity of the work comes into your your strength, because you can say... This is why it is. This is why it's that. And you can't really argue against it. You know, are we just like a bit of a lighter pink? No, we could just go around days, couldn't we? Around pantones, around different types of pink. <laughs> we, just feel, we just feel it's slightly warmer. And it's like, well, shouldn't really be about, about feelings, should it? It should just be about what we think is the strongest work. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of mediation that comes to it. But I like to think that we back the artists because without that, they they would lose confidence even further. Mm. Yeah, it's really, really important. Come back to your kind of, um, your point around management and and as we're having this discussion as well I'm thinking on on both sides you know as, as an artist and and kind of understanding or trying to understand what an agent has to go through and you sharing your experience um, we talked at the beginning about the creative industry being artistic being musical being you know having this sort of skill set but at the end of the day it is an industry and there's a lot of business savvy that you need to survive in it. You know, I talked about the amount of times I'm just replying to emails or <laughs> doing edits and um, making sure my head sheet is filled incorrectly. Yeah. Um, talking about managing egos, being personable to a brand new person, you know, new crew every day, really in my world um, and just getting to know people, which I love, um, but maybe might not be natural to a lot of other people. You know, that is also part of our industry is uh, you're reaching out to people, dealing with people, having those conversations sometimes that are a bit difficult, um, which I think adds to the richness of what we do as well. It's not just, you know, work with the same people in the same setting, delivering no, the same no. thing. But also getting paid. Yeah. Right? You, know, that's, you know, if you're, you know, as, you know, our artists, we take care of that for them in terms of like invoicing and, and making sure they get paid. You've got an agent that makes sure that you get paid. But if you don't have an agent, You've, you've got to file those invoices, you've got to send them off, you've got to chase, you've got to do credit control, you've got to do accountancy, yeah. you've got to do bookkeeping. So there's so much more. And, the, and look, there are great institutions and organisations like the, the AOI and the AOP who provide a lot of support for, for, um, for photographers who are, who are probably out there on their own and, and wondering how to do it. But it's not just a purity of you know, going out and taking a picture, it's everything else mm. that comes with it. Even just the sense of marketing yourself on Instagram. I mean... With the algorithm changes, you just can't put up nice pictures anymore, right? You've got to have something interesting to say. You've got to run that as a reels. 
um, which means, it means you've got to shoot small video, which a lot of people aren't necessarily prepared to do. You've got to have a point yeah. of difference and an opinion on something. So it's, you know, the platform that was set up to, to be perfect for stills artists yeah. now being taken away from them. And that's, that's a big issue as well. Not to mention the advent of sort of AI development of art and whether your copyright work is suddenly going to appear in something that you had no idea because an AI <laughs> algorithm doesn't know idea whether your work was your work or not. Yeah. And suddenly you find that something's being pulled up for a commercial campaign out there and you're like, well, how do I sue them? How do I even so, sue that, I, money, that I, money? I Thinking about, you know, talking about all the things that an agent does for you, the, the big one that... But, I'm so grateful for over over the years. It's been so important for me is contracts usage that someone has got an eye on that and someone can chase that and deal with that. And for anybody who's listening, if you see me in anything <laughs> <laughs> in any country, in any territory, please let me know. Because I want to get paid. <laughs> because it's, it happens so many times, and I've yeah. been lucky enough to be on the right side of things. And actually, in the middle of something, I can't say much. Obviously, here at the moment where. Someone said to me, a good friend, oh, yeah, I saw your ad the other day. Yeah, where well, you do this and you do this. And I'm like, yep, you're not you're not mistaking me. I definitely did that ad. And you saw it the other day. Yeah, it was on ITV. I'm like, did you take a picture? Have you got proof of this? I'm, like, I'm just going through this big circle at the moment being like, somebody owes me a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and actually, you know, thankfully, my agent is dealing with it. Whether they'll be successful or not, it's, it's the another thing because they need the proof etc yeah uh, and i have been very fortunate where they have chased things for me and said hey you know what someone's using this where they shouldn't be we're going to get the money for you um and that support that you get where you, you if it was me by myself i wouldn't necessarily be able to do but probably not you know imagine the legal fees alone and trying yeah. to hunt this stuff down yeah and it feels you know it feels about you know me, me against the big brand or a big corporate mm. and you know they'll, they'll send some sort of formal wording to me and i'll be like oh maybe i did agree to this i, I don't know it, <laughs> it was eight years ago how, how could i possibly agree to something staying on for eight years but i think yeah i think usage usage and copyright copyright less so because I, I think it's probably there's more legislation around the protection of that but usage you know the idea that people say oh, don't worry we're only going to use it you know for, for, for next year probably only in the uk and probably only across our social and then you know two years time you're seeing it in the far east on a big out, <laughs> out big billboard campaign you're like whoa, whoa i'm, I'm, I'm suddenly I'm, aware actually that we're, we're we're falling into a trap of maybe talking about things that are really common to us but just for <laughs> People who are who aren't in this industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you mind elaborating on what we're talking about in terms of usage? But there's one of the, one of the biggest uh, fees, if you like. So there, there are two main things for a for a visual artist, if you like, specifically a photographer and, and, and an illustrator in, a, in our sense of Studio Pie, is that there would be the fee that you would need to pay for one of our artists to create that piece of work that you're briefing them on. Then there's another fee, which is for you to then use that piece of art in any context that you've decided so for example uh in the context of uh the ian wright google campaign that we were part of that was to go digital out of home in the major cities around the uk for a period of a year and to be a paid campaign so there's there's various loadings or multiples of your rate that would increase as the usage of that artwork expands so if there's something that was going to be a global campaign and you're you're shooting Brad Pitt and it's going to be a deal campaign. It's going to go globally in 75 different territories and all this different, then you can stand to make a ton of money 
on the assumption that they pay you fairly for that usage. Sometimes what happens, it doesn't happen very often, but it happens enough for it to, to irk a lot of people, is that there'll be an initial agreement about what that usage is, probably on the smaller side and on a limited number of channels. And then suddenly it will leak into something or you'll see it somewhere in the way that you just described with, with one of your friends. <laughs> oh, you know that you can agree. <laughs> and you're like, well, hang on, that, that's, that's, that's actually the definition of being unfair now. Because yeah. you don't own that. I created that. I own it. We agreed that you could have it for this, this, and this. And now you're using it over there for that. You, you owe me money. And I think that's where bigger brands um, and bigger egos can probably take advantage of, of, of lesser confident people. And then that's, that's like you say, that's a big role of the agent in the protection of the rights of, of artists and their, and their copyright and their usage and, and ultimately what they created. Because mm. that's, that's why you asked them to do it in the first place. So... Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, I hope that was clear enough. I hope that sort of... Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, it's difficult because I, I understand it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I would say, actually, that the big example from my world is you, you work on something and you've signed it off for usage in the UK and then your friend comes back from somewhere in Europe and says, hey, great ad, I saw it in Germany. You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, I suppose, coming back to the, the how important that having an agent is... Um, I think about, and maybe it's changed now in this creator economy, you know, my conversations with, with David George and how much money is in influencer marketing. I remember when I first started working with people who got into the industry via platforms like Instagram, they were just really grateful to be paid. Mm. And when you were sitting down with them and talking how much they were getting paid, you're like, you're not getting paid enough. This isn't the going rate. But because they were finally getting paid for all the work they were doing, they were like, oh, this is fantastic. Someone's paying me to do my hobby. And I was like, they're not paying you what they should be paying you, though. And it's really difficult. I think that's that's changed. People are more aware now. I think it's more conversation around what the acceptable rates are. But again, an agent's going to protect you with that. Um, I'm curious to hear, you talked about Instagram, particularly as a platform that was around still photography and sharing beautiful art and images. What kinds of things, in all these years now you've been in the creative industry, What's the biggest thing you've had to adapt to um, in how we work, how we commission work, how we get work? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I feel like the answer should be TikTok, but we we don't embrace TikTok. It isn't a platform necessarily for us right now because of the focus on stills. I mean, look, we're a small team. We're a team of five. So the idea of suddenly now having to take on another <laughs> social channel and, and not a small one, right? You know, that's, that's yeah, a yeah. thirsty high maintenance at least i would view it as um channel so i think the biggest challenge for us at the moment is is that flip between the the so-called desire for motion and i think there's been quite a few high profile instagram uh, accounts uh, and influencers who have said that they don't believe it should be this type of platform. I was very happy for it to be this. I remember the Kardashians coming out, I think, when that announcement was made around the algorithm. And we don't want it to be about reels and videos. We can go somewhere else for that. I just wanted to look at nice imagery for my friends. And obviously Instagram went, well, that's fine, but we see where the money is and that's mm. what we're going to do. And you've got to respect that. They're a business and they, yeah. they want to they move. Uh, they've seen TikTok and they want to try and head that off at the past. So for us as a, as a stills-focused business, with artists that do that. I think it's navigating that. So we're running a, a social media campaign at the moment, right? A paid social campaign, but we've stitched together stills to make it feel like motion reels and we've got um, soundtrack running over the top. But not everyone can 
do that. You know, I'm fortunate enough to, like I said, to have um, wealthy and patient uh, investors who are willing to let us trial a few things. But again, if you're a photographer on your own, mm. what you've now got to add to all the things that we've just discussed around around what you've got to do, create, create a, a showreel <laughs> that then looks exciting enough to be maybe shown on a platform that I hope that um, that people will see. So for us, I think that's probably the, the biggest challenge that's, that, that's going to come. The most exciting thing that we're looking forward to is what that might, what art might look like in the metaverse. I mean... I imagine that's another podcast, right? Uh, <laughs> sorry, you know, let me know when you want to do part two, and I'll bring on some, I'll bring on some of the artists who will talk for days around their, how excited they are about producing art in the metaverse. Um, but that is going to be a really interesting one, mainly because no one really knows what to do right now. You know, yeah. and I think if you can get artists who feel like they can be a creative force in that space. That's exciting because it isn't coming from Meta or it isn't coming from a yeah. from a corporate business who is ultimately going to make money out of how many people use the Metaverse. So it's actually going to come from creatives who say, no, this is just really exciting. And actually, we can mm-hmm. do this. And these are the sort of innovative, technologically advanced options that we can do that can that make this art even more interesting. So we're going we're gonna to start looking at how specifically we wanted our new artists, Polygon 8, who are a multidisciplinary duo, um, two brilliant, brilliant guys. Uh, around how we might start just talking about that more and raise mm-hmm. the profile of Studio Pi and the artists in, in that world. So that feels like the most exciting thing for us in this world about what we want to try and, and, and learn more about, really. I mean, it sounds exciting, but equally terrifying. Yet another platform that I, I can't even begin to fathom. And I know... Well, and that's before our daughters start deciding that they to go out in the metaverse. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> Oh gosh! Now that will have to be another podcast. I don't know how we're going <laughs> yeah. to tackle that one, or who who is best placed to, to talk about it. But that would be interesting. Um, gosh, so and it moves so fast, doesn't it? You know, the, the pace of this industry. It's more Moore's law in action. Moore's law about kind of technology exponentially getting better and better. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm a bit squeamish now thinking about all these other platforms that I might need to get my head around. Interestingly <laughs> enough. Um, I'm starting to see <laughs> in contracts now when we talk about usage. So one of the terms that, that we might see in, in a contract is usage in perpetuity worldwide, which basically means they can own it forever and use okay. it all over the world. Yeah. Um, it's, it's less common to see that big brands, thankfully, but you do see it every now and again, particularly with the smaller ones. What I'm now seeing is usage in perpetuity worldwide and the known and unknown universe as a sentence on a contract. Because <laughs> I think somebody somewhere has realised, hey, if we start putting people on Mars and using that ad on Mars, we're going to have to yeah. play these guys again. It's true. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and it's sort of been the advent of that. And it's basically saying, listen, for this small sum of money, we're just going to own what you just made for us forever. Thanks very mm. much. I can see little hands there. You're in the, the right... Um, and at the right time, I've, I've taken a lot of, of, of Dad's time. It's been a thoroughly enjoyable conversation. <laughs> um, Darren, before we go, please let our listeners know where they can find out more about you and Studio Pi. Uh, come to the website. We've just had a new one launched. It looks, it's it's just brilliant. It's a, it's a great new website. All the artists are, are, are given all the space that they deserve now to, to showcase their So it's www.studiopi.co.uk. 
Uh, we're on Instagram as well. Um, they're the main two for us. So yeah, come and come and have a look. Come check out the artists. Let us know what you think. Awesome. And in true dope black dad fashion, we need to return to our daughters. Thank you very much for listening. I've been Marcus Rantel and you've been listening to another Dope Black Dads podcast. Dope Black Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.